0: Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now you're listening to Legal Faceoff on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers, Rich Lenkoff and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it.
1: Welcome into our latest installment of the Legal Face-Off podcast here on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brand. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will & Emery. Tina, great to see you today.
2: Great to see you too, Joe.
1: And along with Rich Lenkoff of Downey & Lenkoff. Rich, how's it going?
3: Brand Flakes, good to see you. That is Uh, the handle, right? Brand Flakes.
1: Thank you for giving away my Instagram handle. Yes. The newest, Uh,
3: the newest breakfast sensation sweeping
1: the nation. I'm trying to convince my wife to name our first daughter Raisin, but we'll see uh, how well that goes. Uh, let's welcome in our first guest of the show. It's law professor at the University of Pittsburgh and Scholar Award winner Professor Greer Donnelly. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: So, Professor, in the wake of the uh, what we all think is the pending overturning of Roe, uh, there's all sorts of other uh, legal actions going on, including Missouri trying to Criminalize out of state travel. Uh, one solution that women might seek, of course, is travel to another state. Missouri has tried to make that unconstitutional. Do you think that will survive a challenge before the Supreme Court given the current makeup?
4: Well, yes. So, I mean, I think it's important to know that if Roe is overturned, um, roughly half of the country will move quickly to ban abortion. Um, And so, you know, people in those states that are banning abortion will have a few options. Uh, One of them is to continue the pregnancy against their will. The other is to travel out of state. And some people will also choose likely to self-manage their abortion illegally in the home state. Um, We can expect that that's not going to be the end of the story, right? The anti-abortion movement has made clear for a very long time that it's goal is to end abortion nationwide, it will try to do that in a variety of ways, Um, one, by trying to get a federal law passed that bans abortion, um, by seeking a constitutional challenge to say that that fetuses are people under the 14th Amendment. But while those efforts are underway, we can expect that anti-abortion legislators in in, um, anti-abortion states and anti-abortion prosecutors in those states will try to use every power they can um, from their own state powers to ban as many abortions as possible. Um, so Missouri you know, forecasted one of the ways that it might do this. Um, Missouri introduced, although it was not uh, passed at all, pa- passed, so it's not um, on the books, a, an SB8 style civil lawsuit that would create civil liability for anyone who helped someone leave the state for the purpose of getting an abortion. Um, we might also see prosecutors in states like Missouri trying to prosecute abortion providers who are providing abortions on their citizens. Um, so certainly we can expect these interstate State conflicts to come about.
3: So, what do you think of the legal theory they'll be on behind that kind of legislation? I mean, would that survive? Ultimately, that would go to the Supreme Court because it is rather novel. Uh, Given the current makeup of the court, how do you think they would view uh, such a piece of legislation?
4: Well, I think that it's it's pretty it's pretty tough to to say that for sure. Um, I think the my co-authors and I this is a, based on a co-authored project with Rachel Ray Boucher and David Cohen. We have written um, about how there are a lot of uh, constitutional provisions that might suggest that this is unconstitutional. So things like uh, the due process clause might have within it a right to travel, uh, the privileges and immunities clause, the dormant commerce clause. Um, any of these clauses might be used to suggest that um, any that this type of attempt is unconstitutional. But we also note the limitations here because very few states have tried to do anything like this. So there's just very little case law that establishes that this is unconstitutional. Um, And we can look to something like SB8, which is a law um, the law in Texas that made it um, almost illegal while Roe is still in the books uh, for someone to get an abortion after six weeks in Texas. Um, Most people thought that law was blatantly unconstitutional and yet it has been prohibiting post six week abortions Texas for over nine months. So it's hard to say what the court would do. I do have some hope that a justice like Kavanaugh, who at oral argument suggested that um, his view was that the state should be allowed to decide um, what they do with abortion, that he might not go so far as to allow some uh, a state like Missouri to do something like this. Uh, but of course, it's, it's hard to tell at this point what the court would do. And I am not particularly confident that the Supreme Court would do much to limit states' ability to pass restriction, rest- restrictive abortion laws?
3: I know Tina's going to jump in here, but I just it's a really interesting question. And again, it's uncharted territory. And the question is, the Alito decision is based on the idea that this is not a federal issue, it's a state's issue. The question I, I think would come down to, if it's a state issue, does that state decision only apply to a, its own citizen? I guess, I guess conservatives would argue, yes, that if you're relying on the states to decide, inherent to that argument is that the state should decide what's best for their citizens not for citizens who come in from another another state, right? That's probably the argument that they would rely on in, in upholding a Missouri travel ban, for example.
4: Sure, but it, 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 yes, it gets very complicated in the context, especially of these personhood laws, probably many of your viewers are familiar with, right? So if a state not only tried to pass um, a law somewhat like the one in Missouri, but also had a personhood law saying that a fetus was a person from the moment of conception, it gets complicated because all mm-hmm. of a sudden, right, theoretically, that fetus is a citizen of that state, Um, from the moment of conception. So what happens when someone conspires to end that citizen's life by going to another state? Um, And so you can see very quickly how complicated the legal domain will get once you start to play with how this might come down.
2: So Professor, what possible federal solutions do you think there are given the failed attempt last week to pass the Senate bill? What other solutions do you think we can really realistically look at at this stage?
4: Yes, it's a great question. I mean, so um, I think at this point right now with this Congress, it's unrealistic to think that we're going to get some sort of federal con- or federal right to a- abortion. Um, there have been some people online who have started suggesting that perhaps this Congress or an, or a similar Congress could could get together to pass something like a national right to travel, um, maybe something that's not specifically tied to abortion, but that would certainly allow free movement between states to take advantage of other states' laws. Maybe you would get enough people um, that would be willing to sign on to something like that. Um, but also, you have the Biden administration now. There's a Democratic administration. He has a lot of control. Um, I, the narrative where Biden doesn't, can't do anything here is not exactly true. Um, my co-authors and I have have gone to great lengths to describe a lot of the different things that the Biden administration could do just through um, the FDA and through HHS to try to protect as many abortions as possible, um, not only in states that allow it, but also perhaps in states that don't. Um, and this is usually through the theory of preemption. So the idea being federal law, Trump's state law. So what are the federal laws that could be used as a tool here to try to challenge state abortion laws and expand access throughout the country? And so we have talked about about, um, you know, the various things that the FDA can do because the FDA regulates uh, medication abortion, the two drug regimen that people can use to end a pregnancy. Uh, But there's also things that HHS and other agencies can do to try to advance abortion access.
0: Just want to
3: pick up on the FDA issue uh, with our last minute or so we have, but 90 seconds on legal face off. Um, I was surprised to learn that most abortions, I think something like 52, 53 percent were actually done medicinally, like you mentioned. Um, what do you think uh, anti-abortion proponents or um, legislators would do to try to ban? Is that the next step that they're going to try to ban uh, abortions by by medication?
4: Yeah. So, uh, so what
3: do you think? What do you think the, you think the uh, court what, what courts would would do with that kind of uh, legislation?
4: Yeah, so we we actually know that the anti-abortion movement knows that the that medication abortion is the future, and it's also incredibly difficult for it to police. Pills can go in and out of states without anyone detecting them all the time. And so in this new era, kind of the post-Roe era is going to be different than the pre-Roe era because of medication abortion and because people can go online and buy this medication, even if it's not legal to do so. And it's going to be quite hard to police state abortion bans given um, this medication. Um, so already states have introduced laws that are trying to ban this medication. Many states already have laws on the books that that significantly um, curtail its um, its shipment or that um, that make it much more difficult to access. Um, so if a state were to actually ban this medication, I think that would be very susceptible to a preemption lawsuit that a state is not allowed to ban an FDA-approved drug because the FDA approval trumps that state law. Of course, we're talking about something that's novel and that the Supreme Court would have to hear and, um, you know, we, it's hard to say where the court would come down on that argument.
1: Again, that's Professor Greer Donley of the University of Pittsburgh. Professor, thank you so much for the insight. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff.
5: Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery, and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina. And to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit MWE.com.
2: Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Professor, discussion continues, understandably, regarding the leaked draft of the U.S. Supreme Court's forthcoming opinion on abortion, which seems to foreshadow overturning the landmark decision Roe v. Wade. Legal experts are also debating what impact this decision would have on other rights, such as LGBTQ rights. What does the leaked draft say on this particular issue?
6: So the leaked draft attempts to say that abortion is just different. And so whatever the court does with Roe versus Wade and the, the decisions that have, have been, uh, you know, that have come out of Roe versus Wade, um, that that's just something that's, that's unique and therefore undermining uh, the, the claim that we're undermining these other rights. Uh, By reversing Roe is untrue. So the opinion attempts to blunt the criticism. Um, However, I I think that there's also a a real case to be made that once you start untangling rights which are bundled together, you make it much more susceptible, uh, or those rights are much more susceptible to attack later down the road. So the opinion tries to uh, to attempt to hedge against the criticism, but I think the criticism is actually quite valid.
3: So why do you think Alita goes into that language, Professor? Or do you think? He is being disingenuous do you think he's trying to get ahead of the inevitable discussion that we're having that once you do open that you know tube of toothpaste you can never put it back or do you think that there is some constitutional law theory that makes l lgbtq rights and other rights like the right to contraceptive contraception is the right to um, you know interracial marriage do you think those are different
6: I, I think Alito is being disingenuous. Uh, frankly, part of part of the reason why we know this is because Justice Alito and Justice Thomas wrote in an opinion not very long ago that they thought that Obergefell, which is the decision which said that same sex couples have the freedom to marry, um, should be revisited in some to some extent by the court. So we know he's already on the record um, as as wanting to revisit Obergefell in, in some measure. Um, I, I, th- what we, I think what we really have to understand here is that the, the, that there always is the potential to go back in time and, and rights are not a run, one way ratchet. that sometimes we can, we can have rights which have been long established, either totally overthrown, like we're seeing with potentially with row, or eaten away at the edges. So the, the other thing that we might consider is, for example, contraception. Now the right to an abortion, is part of the right to privacy, which is grounded in a case that was all about access to contraception for married couples. Um, Now, people might say, well, nobody wants to attack birth control, but the reality is that's also not true because what you've seen in the case like uh, with Hobby Lobby a few years ago and you see with other pro-life activists is the argument that certain forms of birth control are abortifacients and therefore maybe they should be unlawful and they should be cracked down on. Um, And so even though uh, overturning Roe may not necessarily jeopardize all forms of contraception. You might see the courts and activists attempt to take away certain kinds of, of contraception away from, from folks. So I, I think that this is really quite dangerous in terms of all the doors that are potentially open by overturning Roe and overturning the subsequent case law like Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Certainly, um, you know, not all of this stuff is going to necessarily happen. The parade of horribles may never come to pass. But it's certainly much more likely that those things will happen if the court overturns Roe than if the the underpinnings of Roe are upheld.
2: So, Professor, overturning Roe is also likely to have a profound impact on the balance between the states and the federal government and our federalist system in general. Would you like to comment on that? So, you know, here's the thing.
6: If people believe that there is a fundamental right to privacy, and if people believe there is a fundamental right to an abortion and that women should have the ability to exercise bodily autonomy, um, you know, it shouldn't be left up to a state to figure out what rights women have in their state and right, have a completely different regime in the next state over. It's, it's really quite, I, I think, really quite perilous. Uh, to say that these kind of fundamental core rights that we have now for 50 years in our constitutional order are just going to be devolved back to the states. And we're going to have 50 different uh, rules for, for women across the country. I think what's also incredibly dangerous about the position we'll be in if you know Roe is overturned is that in a post-Roe world, you're going to see states try to criminalize women leaving the state for an abortion that might be lawful in another state. For example, uh, uh, Missouri has has been tinkering with some legislation that would actually burden a woman's ability to travel out of state for an abortion. And namely, right, they're targeting women who would go to Illinois um, because Illinois has a much more permissive uh, abortion law than Missouri, you know, does now, and certainly would have a much more permissive uh you know set of rules than Missouri would have if Roe is overturned. So right, these implicate things like the right to travel and and um, you know, and there are states that have tried to basically regulate uh, kinds of pregnancies that are not even viable and that will necessarily result in the deaths of women. Um, you know, women should not basically be subjected to life and death decisions made by legislators on their behalf, um, you know, just based on what zip code they live in. It's a really, I think, really bad spot. We We don't want to go down that road, but that's the road that we're headed down if the Alito draft turns out to be. Uh, more or less, the opinion we get at the end, you know, probably towards the end of June.
3: Professor, last question here on legal face-up. We appreciate your time, uh, Justice um, Clarence Thomas spoke a few days ago, and uh, we'll be discussing this in our grab bag segment here in a few minutes. I'm sure you saw uh, his his quote. Uh, what interests me was his idea that uh, you know he was lamenting the fact that. This was leaked, of course, and lamenting how this will affect the Supreme Court going forward. And what struck me in his uh, comments were his his saying that, you know, basically liberals shouldn't act this way when they disagree with an opinion. And the words he used were quite telling. He said, we don't do that kind of thing. Uh, This shouldn't be a tit for tat. And last time I checked, you know, Supreme Court justices are not supposed to use we. They're not supposed to be part of any one side or the other. They're certainly not supposed to be part of a political party. We all know that Clarence Thomas has those feelings, but it's quite jarring. It was a little jarring to me to hear him say out loud that he's part of this group of you know, Republican conservatives who chose not to act out the same way liberals are now acting out. What are your impressions on his comments?
6: Well, I think the first thing I would ask is you know, what kind of conversations has he had with Uh, his wife, about accepting things that are, you know, decisions that people make that are not, right, uh, consistent with what they want, right? Uh, Clarence Thomas and, you know, I I think folks that are close to his circle um, challenged the legitimacy of the 2020 election and attempted to overthrow the United States government. I find that to be problematic, much more so than people protesting uh, peacefully a potential overturning of a 50-year-old recognized constitutional right, um, you know, there, people complain about a lot of things, but what Clarence Thomas did was, frankly, I think, exceedingly hypocritical. And most importantly, I think what people need to recognize is this. The Supreme Court is, is different because it, it acts differently in terms of, you know, the way the presidency works and in the way Congress works. But ultimately, the United States Supreme Court makes rules under which we must all live. It is a political body. It is a different kind of political body, but it's a different political body. Um, you know, in essence, you know, making, you know, doing the same thing by making rules under which we have to live. And I think that the the fact that that there's a sitting Supreme Court justice who thinks that we should just submit to their judgment without any pushback, without any um, kind of debate, without any kind of, uh, you know, engagement, like what we're doing right now, which we're talking about the consequences of good and bad for the things that the United States Supreme Court does, um, I think that's just that's just insane. We, we need to treat the court just like any governmental institution. Um, the court doesn't have to have some kind of special rule or special place where it's immune from criticism. Indeed, what we should be doing is debating the kinds of things that the Supreme Court's about to do. We need to have honest conversations about the consequences for the decisions that the Supreme Court is about to make. Um, and, and frankly, the least concerning thing here is the leak. For me, the more concerning thing is what are we allowing states to do in terms of regulating the bodies of women? That's that's the real tragedy here, not a leak.
3: Professor, I wonder, do you think that uh, Clarence Thomas is preparing to divorce Jenny Thomas, his his white wife, if this decision in Roe leads to the overturning of Loving? I wonder if uh, if that's in the offing.
6: Uh, well, I think Loving's safe. You know, the thing the thing about Loving versus Virginia is that. Um, You know, no one would deny that the Equal Protection Clause protects people against racial discrimination in in all forms. And I I really don't see Loving versus Virginia being threatened in any way. But I do think that there is a much serious and a real threat um, that's not speculative towards LGBTQ rights, towards women's rights more broadly, uh, towards transgender rights in particular. Um, and, and all sorts of kind of personal bodily autonomy, privacy-based rights that we take for granted now, including the right to birth control access, these things are very, very real um, in, or in very, very real danger. And I think we need to be you know, cautious about um, you know, the, the future that the, that the Supreme Court you know, or, or what might happen to those rights, given what the Supreme Court is about to do, I think.
2: Professor, thank you so much for joining
6: us today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And it's it's good to chat with y'all. We all
3: know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony, and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com.
1: Continuing on the Legal Face Off podcast, let's talk about Chicago casinos with a friend of the podcast, Alderman Brendan Riley of the 42nd Ward. Alderman, thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me.
3: Alderman, this casino deal is a uh... Seeming like a done deal by now. Uh, you've been against both the process and the location, which is partially in your ward. Explain to us what issues you've had with how this has all gone down, the speed of which it's gone down, especially where it's located <laughs> or going to be located.
7: Yeah, well, soup to nuts. I've had problems with, with this process. Um, it, what, what's most frustrating is that a special city council committee was impaneled to presumably vet the three final bids. To determine which would be best for the city. And then we were told, well, no, we'd like you to ask some questions at a public hearing, but ultimately the mayor is going to pick the, the finalist. And then you all get to vote yes or no, um, kind of a zero-sum game. So that process changed as we went. We also saw what appears to be some preferential treatment of one of the bidder's ballies, who ultimately prevailed uh, among the mayor's selections. Um, things like um, being able to amend their bid after it was submitted and accepted as a finalist, um, being allowed to forego paying a $300,000 um, vetting fee for one of the locations in their bid when the other competitors had to pay for each of theirs. Um, those were issues. But then you know, this idea, uh, hurry up and, and review and approve this deal as quickly as possible, uh, and rely only upon one financial analysis prepared by Union Gaming, uh, whose parent company was in on a $700 million cash raise last year with who else but Bally's. Um, so there are a lot of red flags popping up on this for me. Um, and then certainly the locations don't seem as if they were uh, thoroughly vetted either. Um, the idea of, of citing a, a temporary casino at Medina Temple bounded by Ontario and Ohio streets, which are downtown's busiest arterial feeders, um, without the, the benefit of a traffic study, mind you. Um, this all seems very rushed. And a lot of my colleagues are concerned um, that this once-in-a-lifetime decision we need to make um, isn't getting all the consideration that, that it deserves and it requires.
2: So, Alderman, what are your thoughts on, you know, pivoting a bit to the Plan um, to open the pot dispensary in the former Rainforest Cafe in River North. What are your thoughts on that issue? Yeah. I
3: I took my kids to uh, Rainforest Cafe for about 15 years. I thought it already was a pot dispensary.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It was a pot dispensary by 1990 standards. I I swear (laughs) to God, those
3: those gorillas and frogs were talking to me for years. I thought.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, they certainly
7: had a psychedelic theme going there, that's for sure. Um, you know, the way the cannabis process works in Chicago um, is that it's run through the Zoning Board of Appeals and aldermen don't serve on that board. It's a semi quasi judicial body um, of a mayoral appointees and they review these applications. Um, so really, in this public process, the local residents and the neighborhood associations tend to have the the most weight. Um, if you recall, I spent some time wrestling with Mayor Lightfoot over the downtown marijuana exclusion zone. I thought that that was a real mistake. The city needs the revenue and I want healthy competition in that industry. And so uh, we were able to lift that a big chunk of that zone to open it up for social equity applicants who are coming and, and for others. So as far as Rainforest goes, it seems that they've had a pretty successful run with the neighbors. There are some uh, folks who are skeptical of cannabis generally. Some not really excited to be living right next to one of these dispensaries, but generally the neighborhood, River North, um, is seemingly uh, accepting of, of this particular location. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the applicant engaging back and forth with the neighborhood association and, and negotiating in good faith, addressing security concerns and aesthetic and loading. Um, and so um, when things are going well, the neighbors, I think it's the Alderman's role to, to stay out of the way. Um, but I am one of those aldermen who does support a, um, a vibrant cannabis economy in Chicago because the revenue upside is tremendous. Um, and so is, frankly, the, the tourism potential. Uh, other big cities around the country, like Denver, for example, um, have built cannabis into their tourism economy. Uh, and it seems there's a real demand for it. So I think Chicago should embrace it. And it seems that the stigma that came with the war on drugs years ago, I think many of the neighbors have gotten over that. And understand, having seen these open downtown, that they operate a whole lot more like a pharmacy than they do like a head shop. um So I, I think I think a lot of folks who live downtown are kind of turning the corner on cannabis.
1: Alderman, we got to
3: ask you about uh, some other news facing the city. Uh, most notably, the passage of the new ward map that was the subject of months and months of negotiation. Um, that was passed by what forty a vote of uh, forty three to seven to approve the new ward map yesterday. Uh, resulting in some really odd-looking wards. we gotta, we got to yeah. give a, uh, a shout-out to a friend of the program, uh, Alderman Villegas, mm-hmm. who uh, got a really strange-looking uh, snake-like gerrymandered ward out of this whole process. What's your feeling on how this whole process went, and, and how is it affecting your ward, the 42nd, if, if at all?
7: Sure. Well, you know, this, I've, I, this is my second uh, remap that I've gone through as an alderman. Um, and I was pretty new on the job in my first go around. Uh, this one was especially divisive. Um, the Latino and Black caucuses, uh, it was a very emotional uh, debate between the two. Um, and, and for folks who aren't familiar, the way the remap process is, is driven is that the Latino caucus proposes a map and the Black caucus proposes a map. And then everyone else reacts to those maps. And with adjustments and negotiation, you tend to pick one. Um, and in this case... Uh, the Latino caucus decided to go off and and negotiate their map separately from the standing process at city council, um, which created essentially two very different maps. Um, And they were drafted in a vacuum because certain aldermen who share borders weren't communicating with one another. So that's what kind of set up this whole issue coming to a head. Um, As a result, um, I think there are a lot of fractured relationships in the city council now. Um, I think if we had to go to referendum, it would have been a costly one, um, not just to administer at the ballot box, but then the, the, the legal battles that will ensue. Um, after that fact, in 1990, we had a situation where we had a, a $20 million legal battle. Um, so, you know, the hope is, although not perfect, and certainly there are always these crazy looking wards every 10 years that come out of this process, um, that the council can, can move forward on this. And, and figure out how to try and get along and get work done for the taxpayers. I don't think the average person focuses much on political maps. Um, but we need to get to a process, I think, down the road where uh, the public has a, bit, a greater seat at the table and, ultimately, um, the ability to help decide which map is actually implemented. Because it is still very much um, done behind closed doors and, and between elected officials who have their own self-interests.
2: So, Alderman, last question here on Legal Face Off. As we enter the much warmer months here in Chicago and coming off another weekend of violence, both in Chicago and elsewhere, unfortunately, some of the most high-profile crime, high crime occurs in your ward, um, given that it contains some of the most frequently visited parts of Chicago, like the Magmile and River North. What are you and your colleagues um, trying to do to remedy this, and what should Mayor Lightfoot be doing?
7: Yeah. And yeah, those are two very distinct questions. You know, unfortunately aldermen are pretty limited in what we can do to control uh, outcomes in the police department. Um, The police superintendent is picked by the mayor and reports directly to her. Um, But I can tell you that within my capability, I spend a lot of time with the police uh, every week. And, And one of the things we do is identify new areas for police pod cameras, improving lighting. Uh, I was the first Alderman to use Aldermanic menu money to install license plate reader cameras for the police department to help them get a better handle on carjacking and to be able to run license plates quickly in real time and know who's in these vehicles if they're stolen or they're outstanding warrants. Um, So technology is somewhere Alderman can help. But when it comes to resources, strategy and tactics, that really falls to the department and the mayor. Um, We are down close to 2,000 officers and it shows. Um, We've got excellent local commanders in our police districts, um, but frankly, they're being asked to fight the fight with one arm tied behind their backs. Um, They do not have the overnight resources that they need. And so I think we need to see the department uh, further reduce the reliance on these specialized tactical units that rove from, from area to area and reassign those cops back to their police district so they can get back into the beats that they know best. That is the most effective policing strategy we've seen. And the city, unfortunately, has gotten away from that. And so that is, I think, a critical adjustment that needs to be made at the very beginning of the summer, um, while also knowing we're to have these larger group incidents that require some tactical units. But we still have hundreds and hundreds of cops uh, stuck in these tactical units that are um, roving the city with very specialized duties, and they have no knowledge or understanding of the local turf that they're they're patrolling. And so um, there, there are a lot of changes that are needed because it's clear the current strategy just isn't working.
3: Alderman, actually, one last question before we let you go. Uh, you uh, very famously uh, had a proposal to narrow city of Chicago's ban on service animals and businesses. Uh, we're covering here in a few minutes the discussion about whether elephants should uh, qualify for personhood. So, what's your <laughs> feeling on that? Should dogs and elephants be considered uh, people and have legal rights the same way we
7: do? Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I'm a curve to curveball, actually. Well, you know, I think people that want to bring their dog to the bar or to a restaurant. And the restaurant is game for that. That should be allowed. I, I'm not sure we got room or capacity for elephants. But um, <laughs> obviously, you know, elephants, I, they're intelligent creatures. And clearly, they have emotion. And um, I'm a big fan. But my aim is really more on uh, making dog owners happy because we have so many of them in my ward. And they, they tend to like to go drinking and eating with them
1: turning the dog walks into a bar from a joke into an actual statement that is alderman brendan riley of the 42nd ward he's been serving on chicago city council since 2007 alderman thank you so much for the time great to be with you take care On the legal grab bag here with the Legal Face-Off podcast on WGN Radio. Let's get to our two guests. We'll start with friend of the podcast, Bill Donovan, co-chair of McDermott, Will, and Emery. Bill, how's it going today? Good to be back. Hi, everybody. Absolutely. Another friend of the podcast as well, Justin Kaufman, reporter and writer for Axio Chicago, radio host and 16-inch softball enthusiast. <laughs> Justin, how are you doing today? I would say champion. I wouldn't say enthusiast. I'd say champion. But that's well, I, I, champion. Didn't wanna, I didn't know how many times you were a champion. So if it was more... I don't
0: want to brag about it, Joe. Three times. Three times. Okay.
1: All right. All right. By All the right. way,
3: I'm offended that I'm not on the invite list. I was playing on the WGN team for like one summer, and then Kanyanovich, I think, like, shamed
0: me into never playing again. So, well, I, you know, I was coaching that team. I was coaching that team when you were on the team. Oh, no I wonder. don't coach no Dr. Ernie, Dr. I'm out. I'm not the GN coach anymore. Yeah.
3: That, by the that, way, how, Joe, how do you think the people who aren't introduced by you as friends of the of show feel like are they, they're enemies of the show?
1: Well, now I've, I'm pretty much down to calling everyone a friend of the podcast. Right. Until I get corrected the other way, because whenever I forgot it, you were like, don't you know, it's a friend of the podcast. I return guests, esteemed return guests. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, if, if we could give everybody a jacket when they have been on the show for one time and change the color code. All right, let's move into the legal grab bag, Tina. And let's uh, unfortunately start with the tragic Buffalo shooting.
2: Yeah. So Joe, it was awful. The horror of Saturday night's racially motivated massacre in Buffalo. Um, There's a lot that we've been unpacking the past couple of days, including um, a large set of online postings by the shooter, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, um, have come to light since the shooting. Um, and it's, they've made it pretty clear a few things, actually. Um, first, that he spent months preparing and planning the shooting and had actually been looking um, into the shooting in March and had been on site or near the site of the massacre. Um, there's also been a lot of discussion of New York's red flag law which took effect in 2019, which allows judges to bar people who are believed to be dangerous from possessing firearms. Um, Gendron was able to to actually blow by this law, Um, even though judges have issued hundreds of orders barring people from possessing firearms. um, You know, he ended up bypassing this and was able to buy an assault-style weapon Um, He had been held for a mental health evaluation last year um, after making a threatening remark at his high school that he wanted to commit a murder-suicide and then later characterized it as a joke. Um, And it's this, I think, this whole thing of it being a joke um, and him lying his way through that, um, that ended up enabling him to bypass this law, even though these posts that have come to light make it clear He knew exactly what he was doing. He admitted to lying, um, and he he knew what the consequences were of his actions. Um, Another very troubling thing is that he was live streaming um, as he started this, and his posts um, and online diatribe were on one chat application, um, and under this username, Jimbo Boy, he actually ended up live streaming. Um, those videos ended up that footage, um, ended up hitting various platforms before it was finally taken down. So, I mean, zooming out here, we've got a very troubled, troubled person. There were a lot of signs that he may have done or would do something like this. Um, he recently purchased a Bushmaster assault weapon. Um, you know, and the fact is that between the video and these writings, it's called into question um, not only this New York law and why didn't it be enacted again? Why wasn't it um, enacted against him? But also these social media platforms um, that have posted the writings as well as enabled the sharing of the video streaming. Um, there's extremist content often, and it's we've really discussed this before on the show, but I think it's taken a real different turn here. What should the legal consequences be of posting this type of content, particularly when these platforms are primarily user generated um, and the legal landscape protects many platforms from liability over much of what gets posted? So, Rich, I'm sure that this is going to continue to be discussed, especially as more facts continue to unfold about the massacre. But it's, it's really terrible.
3: Yeah, I mean, of course, it's terrible. Um, you know, uh, you mentioned with the aldermen that we had violence over the weekend here in Chicago. I mean, it's happening everywhere, but this, yeah, this incident in Buffalo is sickening. But again, from a legal perspective, because that's what we're here for, it's really interesting. You touched on a couple of really interesting points. Um, you know, whenever these shootings happen, it seems like I don't know seven or eight times out of ten, there was warning signs, right? And they the police, law enforcement, did pay a visit in these kind of cases, frequently, it turns out, to the shooter. I always wonder, like, how could they not have stepped in? How could they not have arrested? Now, on the other side, we do see lots of law enforcement step in and prevent these kind of shootings in the first place. But in these extreme situations, I always wonder, like, wasn't it obvious? Now, after the fact, it's easy to say. But to your point, in New York State, they have this red flag law. That's one of the most aggressive Uh, laws in the country that actually allows you to proactively enter an order of protection when you have suspicion that someone's going to commit violence. So, you know, now everyone's looking back and saying that when the New York State Police responded to this incident on June 8th of last year, why didn't they do something further? Perhaps this could have been avoided. So that's a big question, as you mentioned. The question of liability of social media is incredibly Um, Relevant, I think also we'll get we'll get Bill and Justin on that. But the other question I've been thinking of is something we've covered extensively on this show is, you know, when you look at the fact that this guy shot up this grocery store, killed 10 people racially motivated and walked away, uh, had the benefit of being arrested where you have, you know, black people don't get that benefit. Right. I mean, George Floyd was killed on the streets of an American city for shoplifting right uh, this person walks into a store kills eight ten black people and is arrested the police managed to de-escalate that to the point of him walking away and spending the next you know 60 years in jail but there's countless examples Sandra bland uh, lots of other people who didn't Laquan McDonald who didn't have that benefit so that's a really interesting uh, look also really unfortunate look too but Bill, Justin, thoughts on any any of those issues?
8: Look, uh, extremism and violence has unfortunately been uh, the subject of profiteering from social media and media companies and politicians for longer than any of us would like to admit. I grew up in Connecticut, and, I, and after the Newtown shooting, uh, I thought that maybe that would be our moment when we would come together and do the right thing. I don't think that the latest shootings the fault of the police. I don't think you can expect people who are mentally ill are gonna tell the truth in terms of red flag laws. I think they're a small step in the right direction. I think this is, and I'm not gonna blame the social media companies for not taking the content down early enough. I think this falls at the lap of those people who have refused to put in reasonable mainstream changes to our gun laws to make it harder for crazy guys like this one to get a weapon. And for those people who were profiteering on hate, and uh, those—that's—that's that's, you know the first step. The other folks we didn't mention are the parents. The parents must have known that this kid was unstable, and I—and uh, allegedly they didn't do enough to prevent it. So it is a horrible tragedy. Unless senior members of uh, our, our leadership in government take steps quickly, which I think they sadly won't do, we're going to have these every week, right? We had a show
3: what about that, Justin? Because we, we've had Ben Crump on our show many yeah. times before. He's now representing mm-hmm. some of the victims' families. If you were sitting on the jury and there were multiple defendants, let's say in a civil lawsuit, there will be civil lawsuits, and the defendants were the parents, right? There are examples of parents being sued in school shooting cases or, or mass shooting cases. The defendants were Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And the defendants you were, yeah, uh, gun manufacturers. The defendants were the police. Would any of that be convincing to you as a jury member? Or do you ultimately say, this is a crazy guy. Crazy people are going to do crazy things. Only he was responsible. I,
0: I think the, the brazen, the action of, of leaving a manifesto of 180 pages to, for, for authorities to sift through the, the idea that this was pretty public is pretty damaging to social media companies that let it go on. And I, I'm thinking, you know, it's easy to say social media companies because, for instance, uh, he live streamed on Twitch. Twitch is owned by Amazon. So it's not like uh, these are companies that are small one-offs that don't know how to handle and manage, you know, uh, conversations and, and 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 extremism that's happening in different platforms. They know how to do it. Discord's another one. That's where he started this. And and what's missing about this social media is that these are not Twitter. I'm got, I'm, you know, I've got followers, I'm putting them out. Discord and and 4chan, they're communities. And and what happens in those cases, especially Discord, is you have a you have a bunch of people around, he's got an audience. He's talking to other people about what he's going to do in the shooting and how he's going to do it. And and that's a question about how that's managed and maintained or how that's even monitored when it comes to a social media company. And that, to me, I think is there's still a lot of holes in the first, you know, uh, the the freedom of speech amendments and things like that about what can be said and what can't be said, especially when it comes to hate speech or in this case heinous hate crimes. So I'm, I'm, I don't think that, that I'd be, I'd be sweating if I were Amazon or I'd be sweating if I were, you know, whoever owns discord, they all owned by big companies, uh, just about what they're letting happen in their own, uh,
1: you know, their own spaces to the Johnny Depp, Amber heard her hearings, Rich, where an interesting audio recording has now popped up.
3: I mean, I'm glued to, uh, this entire trial that's been going on for weeks cross-examination started after a week break. Uh, cross-examination of Amber Heard by Johnny Depp's attorney started yesterday and continues today. Now, yesterday was only an hour, Joe and Tina, uh, but it, it, you know, revealed a chock full of uh, interesting information. Um, You know, the main crux of the cross-examination of Amber Heard, and remember, this is a, not a criminal case, it's a civil defamation suit by Johnny Depp against his former wife, Amber Heard. He's alleging that the results of an op-ed piece that she wrote he uh, was blacklisted, blackballed by Hollywood, and uh, is losing revenue. So uh, he's suing her, and her allegation is that this was all true. In fact, yesterday she said every word of it was true. Now, the cross-examination is, is methodically um, trying to dispel that testimony by showing that despite her allegations that she was beat up and abused repeatedly by Johnny Depp, they're showing pictures from um, the uh, James Corden show, for example, where the night that she says she got hurt, she's appearing on TV. She doesn't look hurt. Now, her response was, uh, I use makeup. I use ice. Um, you know, there's lots of uh, cross-examination to, uh, trying to impeach your credibility. And it's really interesting because I, as you know, I'm, I'm a little obsessed with these kind of trials and I follow everything on social media. And of course, social media is eating the story alive. And I would say, as we've talked about on the show, Tina, that it's at least 80% of people out there are supporting Johnny Depp. And, you know, it's an interesting discussion because Amber Heard is sitting there on the stand telling heartbreaking stories, if you believe her, being abused for years and years, not just emotionally, but physically abused, (laughs) breaking her nose, bleeding. Um, Yet people don't don't believe her. Now I think, as a litigator, there are actual gaps in her credibility that you could point to, but I don't think the average person is picking it up. I think the average person, unfortunately, the popularity contest and Johnny Depp is hugely popular, and that's what people are basing their judgment on. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Rich. I do think there's you know some complexities here to why, at the end of the day, folks are for Johnny Depp and. And, the, and when you look at it juxtaposed against the case itself, I agree with you. I think it's a combination of credibility um, and you and I and others here are more discerning when we're watching these sorts of cases, especially unfolding the way that this one is and how popular it is. Um, I think she has very serious credibility issues. But I agree with you that I think at the end of the day, the average consumer person in the public is looking at it from a likability standpoint or a I've known Johnny Depp longer than I've known Amber Heard lens, which is really not the accurate one. But I think fundamentally, she has serious credibility issues. And I think that's what's going to drive this this case and the decision ultimately.
3: Justin, one of the interesting pieces of testimony yesterday was, and I think it was a pretty cogent point by Johnny Depp's attorney, was that Amber Heard, you take photos of everything, like she's a photographer, she took a lot of pictures of Johnny Depp sleeping, she took videos, yet she admitted that there were no videos of all this alleged abuse, right? She said that, oh, there's plenty of examples where I was bruised way more than you can see, and I was my nose was broken, yet she admitted that there were no photos and evidence of that. I thought that was you know, a pretty, um, pretty persuasive piece of evidence.
0: I, I just wonder, you know, we had this celebrity kind of trial and Johnny Depp playing to the cameras. And he really is. Uh, I, I wonder how many I, I'd love to see a poll on how many Americans or, or you know, people around the world even know what this trial is about. And and that's a that's probably a problem for Amber Heard's side, you know, as, as Johnny Depp knows what it's about, what it's about. It's about, you know, uh, a, like you said, a popularity contest and him losing money because of uh, accusations. But this is at the root of it. A, a serious trial, I mean, it's a civil trial, like I said, about domestic violence and it's not being treated that way. Instead, it's got TMZ and, and, and late night talk shows and everywhere in between making jokes at every every way in which they can. And I think that the average person who's watching this trial is just like, I, is this a new reality show I'm supposed to be watching? Like I, I started at lives doing sketches about it. I don't even I, I, I feel like what's missing is the fact that this is really about domestic violence. And I, th- I wonder if that hurts in the long run, you know, the the idea of domestic violence and and in the court. I'm not sure that's for you guys, the lawyers. Yeah,
3: Bill, this trial. I mean, It's a great question, Bill. This trial is taking place in Fairfax, Virginia, but you're in L.A. I mean, these are L.A. celebrities. Um, I think it does speak to, you know, a turn somewhat in the Me Too movement, although we've seen it go up and down. Right. We've seen initially where you automatically believed everything, the accuser uh, said. And then it kind of evolved to the point where you do want to give the accused, in this case, Johnny Depp, their their due process on their day in court. But I don't know. My gut is that the jury just doesn't like Amber Heard personally, and the general public doesn't like her. And that has a lot to do with how these decisions are made, unfortunately.
8: I think you're right. Look, as a Californian, it's it's a little bit of a surprise they're not litigating this here. I know Depp's lawyers wanted to take advantage of Virginia's summary judgment rules. uh, Tina talked about this, but it's really surprising to me that women's groups have not provided more support to Amber, uh, which is shocking. I can tell you, as someone who litigates in L.A., sometimes involving celebrities, it's hard to beat a celebrity in L.A., right? And I think you guys are right in terms of the court of public opinion, why Johnny's getting more support. But it seems to me that this is mutual assured destruction for both of them in terms of their careers. There was an article today that hit the L.A. uh, press where folks are gonna view Johnny as untouchable, even if he wins. So the facts are regrettable. I know there are allegations uh, against both of them. No one should do that to the other person for sure, assuming there's a kernel of truth in terms of what anybody says, but uh, it's, it's a sad day. Clarence Thomas, we
3: talked earlier about this uh, the speech he gave the other day. And listen, anytime a sitting Supreme Court justice comes out in public, given their uh, famousness for, Secrecy—it's really interesting. We want to talk about it. Uh, in this case, what was even more interesting is how partisan Clarence Thomas uh, spoke about this—you uh, know—abortion leak. He said, "What we all think—I think—is that the abortion that the leak of the opinion was terrible, and that's an unprecedented breach of trust. I think anyone on either side of this issue can agree on that." What was a little startling to me, though, was the words he used in describing the protest. Right, we've all seen protests outside three of the conservative justices in the majority of outside their homes. And again, you might even think as a liberal, that's unacceptable. I actually do agree that that's not the right way to go about your business. But what what Clarence Thomas said before a very pro-conservative group the other day was, quote, you would never visit Supreme Court justices' houses when things didn't go our way. We didn't throw temper tantrums. I think it is incumbent on us to always act appropriately and not to repay tit for tat. Now, count the times there, my friends, a sitting Supreme Court justice, one of the only nine people on this planet to hold that job, said we, uh, our, since when is Clarence Thomas, a we or an our, unless he's talking about those eight other people. He shouldn't be talking about we as part of a conservative group. You know, he shouldn't be saying that when we don't like decisions as conservatives, we don't do what the liberals are doing. We don't go protest outside the homes. Since when does a Supreme Court justice, you know, since when are they part, part of that kind of group? Now, we know that Clarence Thomas is incredibly conservative. We know from prior uh, uh, speeches that he gave how he feels. But this is the first time he or really any other justice in history has spoken this openly about being part of a partisan group in the most partisan decision in history. So really inappropriate, in my opinion. Tina, I don't know how you felt about that uh, That uh, that quote by by Clarence Thomas.
2: I mean, I thought it was really inappropriate. I mean, and with all due respect to Justice Thomas, he needs a media consultant to sort of tell him when to speak and when not to speak. I mean, he just shouldn't have been saying anything at all. He should have just kept quiet, you know, no comment and just steered clear of this. I mean, especially given what is already going on with respect to his wife and the fact that there are there's a contingent that's already laser focused and watching his every move. I think this is just and and you said it, Rich. I mean, not only did he say something, but what he said, it's like he showed his entire hand.
3: Yeah. I mean, take Bill, take the W. Be quiet and move on. I mean, this is doing nothing. I mean, and, you know, he's lamenting the fact that this has irrevocably harm the institution of the Supreme Court. Well, guess what also is going to do that? Having one of the justices talk about how much you are on one side of this decision.
8: Look, I think you and Tina are exactly right. I mean, uh, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Uh, Justice Thomas's wife is the most politically active Supreme Court justice's wife in our history, allegedly texting Mark Meadows about overthrowing the election in January 6th, among many other things, right? I think the leaking of the opinion could have come from the conservatives on the court if one of them was, or their clerks, if one of them was potentially backing off or overturning Roe. But, but leaking the decision was a symptom, it's not a cause. The cause of the problems at the Supreme Court are our politicization of the court, attacks on the court, uh, the fact that our Supreme Court is so polarized, right? Where are the moderates? Uh, and um, we have a lot of work to do as a country on, on all the issues we're talking about. But Thomas also shouldn't have been probably talking to that group candidly, right? If it's such a uh, a politically active group, so he and the other justices would be well served to issue decisions probably be a little more circumspect. But to be clear, I don't support protesting in anybody's houses, whether you're a governor of the state of Michigan or a Supreme Court justice. And I, I totally agree with those who want to prevent people from harassing folks at their house.
3: What Thomas should have been discussing, as we referenced briefly earlier. Is how soon he's going to divorce his white wife, Jenny Thomas, when the Supreme Court overrules Loving, which was the decision finding that banning interracial marriage is unconstitutional, which can happen now that they've unravelled this right to privacy after Roe. So perhaps Justice Thomas is going to start, uh, you know, his divorce proceedings against against his wife if that is ruled unconstitutional.
1: Let's move on over to the footage of Ezra Miller being assaulted, Rich, reportedly in an effort for NFT art.
3: Speaking of of unraveling, lots of unraveling with Ezra Miller. Those of us who don't know Ezra Miller, he's The Flash, best known as uh, The Flash in the the DC series, Justice League. And actually has his own movie that's been talked about now for years. And who knows if that's going to come out now in the wake of this. But yeah, Ezra Miller uh, arrested in Hawaii. Um, and if you, if you watch the body cam video, he, uh, you know, he goes a little nuts. He, uh, he's pretty cooperative for a bit on the body cam video. And then when the officer calls, uh, calls them, because uh, he identifies as them and they, Ezra uh, Miller does, he goes a little, he, he gets very upset and accuses the officer of committing a, a, a federal hate crime. Um, that's an addition to the NFT story. So what's going on with Ezra Miller? Um, you know, the
0: biggest, the biggest thing that he got that, I, I mean, you can go back and forth on all the things that happened, but you know, obviously, you know, recording himself for N- NFTs or whatever, but you know, he got charged. I think it was a assault charge for taking a karaoke, like a mic from a woman who was doing karaoke. In that bar, he it <laughs> out of her hand. That's, I mean, as a karaoke guy, you can't do that. You can't take a mic out of someone's hand. I mean, Ezra, what are you doing? I mean, right away, there's, you have no leg to stand on. All charges, I'll be the lawyer. All charges are go, are go. Guilty.
3: But, but yeah, exactly. You can't do that karaoke. The bigger question, Tina, is um, he's a flash. Like, why does he worry about going to jail? He could just like, you know, run. I mean, I've, I've been a fan of the flash forever, He's so fast that handcuffs can't even hold him, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really have a lot to add to this conversation other than we seem to be um, talking about a lot of Hollywood folk that have a lot of problems.
3: Yeah, favorite. Let's go around the horn and talk about it. He's he's the Flash in D.C. Limiting it to D.C. only. I know, Tina, you're a big D.C. fan. Who's your favorite uh, all-time... DC character. Let's give Tina a second to think of her as Just I know you gotta. I,
0: I'm with you on the Flash. I used to be a huge Flash fan when I was a kid. Not the Ezra Miller Flash. I thought he was kind of lackluster in the uh, in the Batman Superman stuff or the Justice League. Yeah, I, I like and Bat, I think the new Batman's good too, man.
3: Bill, any uh, are, you, are you a DC or a Marvel guy? And, and give us your DC favorite. Uh,
8: I think I'm with uh, with Batman if he's. If he qualifies, I, I don't know. I don't associate the, the uh, superhero with the, the brand. Aquaman uh-huh. was, was was great as a kid as well, but Aquaman, I think, is uh, drowned or something. You don't hear It all that. comes full
3: circle because Amber Heard is the female lead in Aquaman, of course. Right. Nina, you have a favorite DC uh, character?
2: I like Spider-Man. Um, I well, found very so little you're, bit. You're
3: kicked out bit. because why? Spider-Man is of course Marvel, so um, <laughs> you're already disqualified from our little quiz here.
0: You, you <laughs> Batman, <laughs> Superman, go. Flash, Wonder Woman, uh, the uh, Shazam, Martian, <laughs> 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 Bat Girl, Bat Boy, bat Okay, Tina, it happens oh. to the best of us. It does. There's Spider-Man's a Martian superhero. That's a, that's DC loves the Martian superhero.
2: Can you tell I wasn't focused on this growing up?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm in that same boat. Um, Green Lantern. Yes. Yes. There you go. There you go. That's one of the best. I yeah, was a total That's guess, one. but I had a 50-50 shot, so I'll take it. And, um, Rich,
0: we could do this for hours, but uh, I like just nice to see that Green Lantern wasn't in Justice League movies.
3: Yeah, well, he had his own standalone that was a miserable failure with Ryan Reynolds. I was a big uh, Green Arrow guy, but I always wondered, like, there's only like ten major DC heroes, and two of them are named Green. It's like, and and like Green Arrow was clearly the second banana of Green Lantern. I'm like. Can I get some other color that I make it my own? Like, how about like Lavender Arrow or something? You know, but no. Well, I got to be the
1: second green. Thanks. Couldn't he have just been the lantern, too? I mean, yeah, intimidating enough. All right, let's move on to uh, should former President Donald Trump be concerned over the recent arrest of the uh, the rapper Young Thug? Well, uh, it's a good question.
3: Trump (laughs) has uh, an opinion on everything, but. What interested me was uh, the prosecutors who are uh, prosecuting Young Thug are uh, using his lyrics as proof of his guilt. So Young Thug was arrested uh, May 9th. Uh, He was identified as a founder of YSL, and he was hit with charges including violating the RICO Act um, involved in gang activity. And again, as evidence, prosecutors are uh, using some of his lyrics from nine different songs that are listed in the indictment to prove his guilt. The earliest, uh, Tina, as I know, you know this this song, is uh, from 2014 called Ew! EWW, which I thought was a Jimmy Fallon thing. Wasn't that the Jimmy (laughs) Fallon skit? Ew! Uh, And then uh, up into another young uh, young thug, Gunna, Collaboration called Ski. And they're using lyrics to prove that he was guilty of conspiracy to create or to uh perform gang activity and, and, and violence. For example, one of the lyrics from a song called Take It to Trial is Four Slimes, you know I kill trial. I done beat it twice. State I'm undefeated. In another lyric from anybody, he says, I never killed anybody, but I got something to do with that body. So, you know, Tina, you're in the uh, intellectual property world involved with many creatives. Is this a case of just someone using their creative license or is this a tacit admission of young young thug's guilt through his lyrics?
2: You know, I really like this story for a couple of reasons, not like the ultimate outcome necessarily, but to me, it's a pretty slippery slope. If, you know, we have something called the First Amendment in this country And, you know, there obviously are limitations to the First Amendment, but at the end of the day, if we're going to start going after people because of song lyrics, then I think, you know, tweets should be, you know, the next thing to come along and what people say in tweets, in which case I don't think our former president is going to fare very well if we're going to start scrutinizing things that he has said Tweets that he has tweeted over the years. And so I think we just need to be very careful as a country, especially as our civil liberties continue to be, um, you know, scrutinized, shall we say. I, I think it's a very slippery slope. I mean, we've had a history as a country of letting artists, for example, include in their lyrics things that otherwise, if taken at face value, would potentially violate the law and i you think know. that the first amendment has been given um you know it is a very special thing in this country and i think if we're going to start cur- curtailing it and these kinds of situations understand there's going to be a whole boatload of things that will be scrutinized right behind it
0: i hope they have yeah, more Bill, this than is than not the, go ahead Justin. i said i hope they have more than his lyrics you know? right
2: i think they ain't got nothing <laughs> all they have is his lyrics and nah. that's
0: it but i was going to say all of nwa would be in prison I mean that, that the uh-huh. concept of 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 gangster rap is to have a fantastical over the top kind of persona uh, it's it's based in fiction it's it, everything about so the idea that any prosecutor would be serious to say these lyrics are indicative of of a crime without any other evidence is ridiculous that's ridiculous
3: that's I don't know I kind of I kind of unprosecutor- disagree a little I mean I disagree and, and it's not the first time that this has happened in the Travis Scott situation in astro world where there was a tragedy in houston you know he had lyrics i mean these aren't just like abstract lyrics in that situation he had a song and the lyrics were it ain't a mosh pit if ain't no injuries i got him stage diving out of nosebleeds
0: yeah
3: and she hit that booger sugar till her nosebleeds so i mean i think there's something there i agree that you know you don't want to uh prosecute people for their lyrics but when someone raps about something that's an expression. That's just another form of them saying what they want to do or what they want other people to do. The fact that it's hidden in a rap to me doesn't change the fact that mm, it evidences I, some intent.
0: I, I think I think that there's a lot of coded race there because I think that white bands mm. has been doing that for years. I mean, look uh, at the Beatles where she was just 17. You know what I mean? Are you going to get John Lennon on statutory rape? I mean, I, at a certain <laughs> point, you're like, I'm not sure where you draw the line on that kind of stuff. I guess in this case, like I said, for Young Thug, there better be other uh, evidence that he's, hes you know, Rico charges uh, that he started a gang rather than just a couple of lyrics he threw on some, some, you know,
8: albums. Bill, get in here. Sure. Look, there's a lot in the indictment other than the lyrics. So I, I, they're not going to put the guy in jail just for having lyrics. Uh, yeah. The government's been using statements people make against them since they've been prosecuting people. Right. So that's not a surprise. To go back to the, the ultimate question, I, I think uh, the former president uh, shouldn't sleep well at night for a lot of reasons. His tweets should be one of them. His, his actions should be another. Uh, also calling yourself a young thug. I mean, depending on what kind of jury he gets, <laughs> th- th- there may be some. But not a great starting point. Right. But, but to be clear, um, I, I don't think they're prosecuting him just for the lyrics. I think there's nothing wrong with them, including the lyrics. I read uh, uh, the, the transcript of the, the press conference from the prosecutor. She is looking at uh, the former president's actions in, in Georgia and trying to intimidate them on the vote. But uh, allegedly, young thug did did a lot of bad things, and if so, he he may be facing jail time. Uh, not I mean, it's some pretty dumb
0: lyrics too. <laughs> be like a young thug hater. I, I and oh someone enjoy his music, but if he's gonna be he's it's not just uh you know indicting lyrics, but also crappy ones too.
3: That's Holy. the opinion from Justin Kaufman, also known as middle-aged thug. <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> that's why he's all that's why he's all salty about it. Yeah. He took his Past his prime, Thug. <laughs> Let's, uh, Tina. Let's all badmouth Brett Favre as he's now involved in a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So I don't know how many fans out there of Legal Face Off would happen to also be fans of Brett Favre. Probably not many. Um, but Favre and a number of others, including former professional wrestler Brett DiBiase and his father and brother, have all been sued by the Mississippi Department of Human Services in a lawsuit that alleges that they collectively squandered over $20 million um, from the poverty program, um, anti-poverty program in the state. So there are a lot of allegations flying around here. I'm going to try to make it real simple. We've got the ex-Mississippi Department of Human Services Executive Director, John Davis, who actually has the highest tag ad- attributed to him for um, alleged misspent funds, which is $23 million. Um, there's also a woman named Nancy New and her son, Zach, who allegedly ran a couple of nonprofits who are also named in the lawsuit and are tagged with 19 million of those dollars um, and are for allegedly misspent funds. The two of them, her mother and son, have now agreed to testify against the rest of the defendants. Um, And the DiBiase's, which I mentioned earlier, um, I actually, instead of watching Marvel and DC, was watching professional wrestling as a kid. So I know the DiBiase's well. Um, They're alleged to have received several million dollars in in improper payments. So getting to the punchline with Brett Favre, he's been named in the lawsuit for a few reasons. First, it's alleged that as the largest shareholder in a Florida pharmaceutical startup, um, he allegedly urged that company's CEO Um, to get proceeds from Nancy New to use um, in the company. Um, In addition, Favre was apparently paid up $1.1 million for motivational speeches that he never gave. Now, Favre has apparently repaid most of the money, but the lawsuit is still seeking um, the interest on that amount that he has repaid, but he has not been criminally charged. So I think Brett Favre has seen better days, Rich.
3: I mean, as a Bears fan, I, uh, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised by any of this. I mean, Justin, you're with me on that, I'm sure. Uh, ever since Favre laid down for that stray hand bullshit sack uh, back in the day, we knew that. We knew early on that Favre was involved in all sorts of fraud. So that was that was the first evidence of fraud. This is just <laughs> they should another use one.
0: It <laughs> use it against him. They should. Use yeah, it.
3: exactly. And also, some of those contracts he signed later in his life in the. The Vikings, I mean, you know, the Jets deals, those, those were fraud in and of themselves. So I'm not surprised by any of this.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm, I mean, I don't know of too many. I mean, yeah, you guys, you guys are all on the motivational to speaking tours. I know, all, Joe, it's, I know you are, uh, but I, I, who gets money up front for that stuff? Don't you get paid after you do it? Like, that's the thing that's weird about this case. I've seen that a couple of times where he pocketed millions of dollars without actually doing it. And I'm like, that's a weird contract, too, as well. I get my money up front. So there's a lot in this that, and, and then you throw, I mean, then you throw the Dibiases in you're like, I don't know what's happening. and it, There's a lot in this case that is, it seems very Mississippi to me. It's like, I'm not very, I'm not sure what's happening in Mississippi right
1: now. You're that a million dollar man, right? Ted DiBiase. You're that much more motivational when you can persuade the people to pay you before you actually do it. <laughs> Uh, we finish things off of the legal grab bag with a free Willie like story that hits the Bronx Zoo, Tina, with an elephant named Happy.
2: Yes. So at the end of this week, Joe, the New York Court of Appeals is going to hear the case of Happy the elephant, who is trying to have her personhood recognized um, as she is seeking release from the Bronx Zoo after more than 40 years of captivity at the zoo. So happy is represented by the Non-Human Rights Project and the lawyer, Stephen Weiss, and they're trying to get her recognized as a legal person entitled to habeas corpus so that she can be released to an elephant sanctuary. The Non-Human Rights Project has represented other animals over the years, including whales, chimpanzees, and dolphins. And they argue that all of these animals have complex cognitive abilities and autonomy, such that it merits legal personhood. So this lawsuit is among a number of lawsuits seeking legal rights, not just for animals, but for natural entities, um, including cases involving the representation of two lakes, a marsh and two streams, um, which collectively sued to stop a development project in Florida, as well as a type of wild rice called Manumin, which filed a lawsuit to block an oil pipeline Um, And that case was actually based on tribal law, which recognizes legally enforceable rights for plants and animal species. Um, In any event, this is obviously something that we've been seeing over the years, but it's happening with greater frequency. State legislatures are acting to try to prevent such suits. Um, For example, in Missouri, um, there there is a bill that would prevent suits on behalf of non-human entities. And Idaho, where the state legislature recently passed a bill that prevents non-humans from gaining personhood. So I'm a tree hugger, Rich, so I like stories like this where we're trying to give the animals and the plants rights. But I can only imagine what you're going to say in response.
3: Well, I have many responses. I mean, one (laughs) interesting, I mean, in light of what we're talking about earlier with abortion, it's kind of interesting that uh, human rights are being reduced in 2022, but uh, elephant rights are being increased. That's one uh, interesting take, but yeah, I mean, you know, listen. the The gut reaction is, I mean, from a legal perspective, these lawsuits have never been successful. They've been tried before with like chimpanzees and some other uh, animals, so they've never been successful. I mean, on the one hand, it's a little bit of wokeism. It's a little bit of you know waste of the legal resources, even for the most ardent uh, animal rights people. I'm a huge animal rights supporter myself, but I don't know that this is. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, animals are animals. People are people. I don't think conflating the two. And especially, like, extending it to bodies of water. And, you know, where does it end? You know, I mean, and also, okay, if, a, if an elephant becomes uh, a person, uh, that means other animals are people too. So does that mean that when you uh, eat a pig, you're a cannibal? Uh, that you're guilty of murder? I mean, what if you uh, kill a chicken to eat it? Are you then committing murder? Are you then going to be arrested for first degree murder of a person? Because the chicken is suddenly a person. So, of course, you know, those are a little bit silly examples, but who knows? So I would not let this case proceed very far. But uh, Bill, you love elephants, I know. Uh,
8: Look, I've been on safari several times in Africa. And uh, if you've seen how majestic elephants and other animals are, number one, I don't know how you can kill them. Number two, I don't know how you could put them in a zoo. Uh, I can guarantee you happy is not happy. And uh, so I'm gonna take the other position here. I found an interesting definition of a person on the web last night, getting ready. A person is a being that has certain uh, capacities or attributes such as reason, morality, consciousness, or self-consciousness, and being a part of a culturally established form of social relations. Under that definition, this elephant is more of a person than most of the people we've been talking about today. So I, I think the Mars stuff's kind of silly. I think, Rich, if you take your very good points to, to an extreme, then, then this would be silly. But Happy never should have been taken out of Africa. Happy should never have gone to the Bronx Zoo. And uh, I am going to send whatever good kinetic power I can from California to the New York Court of Appeal. And let, let's get Happy out of, out of prison. Have Happy be an elephant for the, and a person for the limited purposes of getting out of the torture of being in that zoo. And let's let's uh, do the right thing here. So there you go. Surprise from the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's not as
3: it's not as crazy as we might make it seem, though, uh, Justin. I mean, outside the U.S., they're having courts like in Argentina, they granted freedom to an orangutan who was in the Buenos Aires Buenos Aires Zoo. Uh, in uh, in a state in India, they ruled that animals are not property
0: but legal entities. Uh, so there is a trend here. So, I mean, it's, if there's le- if there's precedent, then the the then Lawyers are interested, right? I'm not a lawyer, so I, I know, but it's not, I don't think it's wokeism. I think it's trying to find a way to get a loophole to to get the law to favor your side. And if it's about granting personhood, if that, if that, if a, if a court of law is going to grant that, then yeah, that's a great, that's a big win for whoever's, you know, trying to get happy out of the zip. Good for happy. Okay, so, good for happy. So, we got to end I will off say so this too. I will say this if happy in three years then goes and starts tweeting and it's got a bunch of lyrics about, you know, about starting a gang in Atlanta, then that's a different issue. That's a different issue entirely. All
3: right. So since the DC quiz failed so miserably, we got to end off on a happy note. What's your favorite animal, or maybe you could even name your favorite pet. Let's do that. Your favorite pet of all time, Tina, what's your favorite pet?
2: You mean my personal pets or just yeah, something it's your to personal have the name of your,
3: the name, I mean, leave it to a lawyer to question that, that, your favorite pet that you've uh, not owned, of course, but interacted with over the course of your life, had a relationship with.
2: Very hard to choose because I've had a number of pets over the years. Um, I have to say, my 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 two pets, Steve and Marty, right now, my two cats, love them.
8: Okay, the Bill, babies. favorite. Well, favorite to be clear, pet, right? I haven't had a relationship with any of my pets. I want that to be clear. Uh-oh. But, <laughs> whole but other, I'll, I'll mind, uh oh, I'll say, since my favorite baseball team just got out of the cellar last night, and uh, he's a, he's our current adopted dog from China who was going to go to uh, be, be dinner, but we rescued him. I'm going with Fenway, the golden retriever. Go Red Sox!
0: There you go, Justin. <laughs> no, I, my cat is is sleeping behind me. You can see. I don't know if you can see on the there. Mm-hmm. She is Benetta. Well, I will, I'll give it to
3: disinterested in all of this. It yeah. seems like Joe favorite pet.
1: Yeah. I mean, typically I'd go with my childhood dog, Brooklyn, uh, not Bronx Brooklyn, but, uh, I guess I got to jump on the cat train too. I, I, uh, adopted a one-eyed cat during COVID. His name is Plankton. He's a pretty cool dude. Um, there's a lot of quirky things and I also have never had a relationship with my pets.
3: <laughs> my favorite pet of all time is uh, right here on my desktop. It's To show you what an animal lover I am, by the way, look at my desktop calendar. Nice.
8: Uh, look at that. So, yeah. It looks like zoo books. It looks like a
2: WWF calendar.
8: That's right, it is. its got it free the, in the uh, mail. It looks like, <laughs> looks yeah. like 12 people to me.
1: Exactly. Well, now I understand why they call Bill Donovan Wild Bill. We thank Wild Bill and Justin, along with all of our earlier guests on today's Legal Faceoff podcast. To our producers, Yvonne Barbosa, Joey Christopoulos, and Ben Anderson. And for our hosts, Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. As always, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. Please give us five stars as well. We will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio. We blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. in sports,
0: Hollywood and don't forget.